6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 27. Three things. Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 20 picks up on that and says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We tend to get angry. Will self-righteously angry. Well, wait a minute. God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It says that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 41. It's quoted in Romans 12, 19, and echoes in other forms all through the Scripture. It's not for us to right the wrong individually. It's the Lord's issue. And the temptation toward revenge will yield more damage than whatever was done to you. You've been hurt. You've been wronged. Unjustifiably wronged. Your response to that can do you more damage than whatever was done to you by that party. Because it can lead you to sin. James is going to spend a good part of his letter, chapters 3 and 4 in fact, pretty much, on the connection between sinful speech and selfish anger. Here again, James is never very far away from the Sermon on the Mount. He's never distant from those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And Matthew, this is all from Matthew 5, of course. Jesus, uh, as I mentioned earlier, applied the, murder against, the uh, commandment against murder. He applied that against hating, cursing, insulting, and specifically just being angry. That's a sin. The contrast to all this is the righteous life. It's interesting that when the Lord appeared to Abraham, or Abram in those days, in Genesis 17, first verse, God says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. Doesn't mean be totally free of sin, but it means don't be indulged, don't indulge sin. Say, gee, Chuck, that all sounds pretty good. I hear you all those platitudes. You can't argue with that intellectually. But now wait a minute. What do you do when... You, when things are going wrong, when people are hurting you, when there's injury being thrust at you, great trick. What do you do when something comes across your path and you're really confronted with some of this stuff? What do you do? You know what a good answer is? Not the only answer, but probably the best answer? Have your quiet time. That's a great time not to sound off or react, excuse yourself, and go find a quiet corner and have your quiet time. In your quiet time, you're with your friend. You can do what you like. I mean, you can let him know how you feel. Him, privately. Because he'll deal with that with you, you know, if you give him a chance. He'd love to. He'd love to. He's your best friend, whether you realize it or not. Private, quiet time is a, is a suggestion that I can't resist underscoring here. Verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity in, uh, of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the ingrafted word which is able to save your souls. Well, first of all, this whole verse 
gives you a window right into James's worldview. Because he's going to contrast some things. He's going to say, uh, lay apart or lay aside the evil prevalent things around you, uh, which threatens you. That's implied. And rather, humbly accept the word that's implanted in you, which you can, which can save you. But he's contrasting. Laying aside versus humbly accept. Laying aside the evil prevalent, the, the evil that's prevalent around you against the word that's planted in you and that which threatens you versus that which can save you. You see that each element is antithetical to the other. Lay aside the evil that's prevalent around you, which threatens you. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Okay. You see, it behooves us, as, uh, since we're born of God, to judge in ourselves the tendency to uncleanness and abundance of evil and to receive in ourselves the word of God through which we find practical deliverance from the unholy tendencies that we find ourselves in conflict with in ourselves. Now, use the term salvation of souls. This causes a lot of problems. This is not our redemption from judgment of our sins, uh, the judgment that we deserve for our sins. But it refers to the purification of our affections, which are expressed in our soul's activities. For the, at this point, it might be a good time to take a look at Matthew 7. Whenever we get too comfortable, we should always keep one foot in Matthew 7. And we'll pick it up about verse 24. Therefore, whosoever uh, heareth these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and the beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine... And doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Very simple, well-known idiom, and yet do we really apply it? What are we really building on? We're talking about our affections, our where we are. And uh, now, incidentally, in view of this verse in James, minimizing the danger of evil is in light of this verse recklessly unrealistic. You can't minimize the danger of doing evil. We pray for safety rather than purity because you and I don't see impurity as dangerous. That's really what he's getting at. We don't realize that impurity is where the danger is. We tend to pray for safety rather than pray for purity. The biblical repentance that we should be crying out for is, God, I don't want to be like this anymore. Not what's happening to me, but it's my response to what's happening that's where the danger lies. Verse 22, but but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, uh, deceiving uh, your own selves. How many have heard that before? How does one, first of all, become a hearer only? Well, there's about at least four major ways you can become a hearer only. One is by being relativistic, letting, uh, falling uh, victim to subjectivity, relativism, comparing one with another, and well, that's not as bad as some people, that kind of thing. The minute you start doing that, you're being a hearer only. 
Another strange way you can be a hearer only is by being superstitious. What do I mean by that? That's to rely on something sort of magical. You know, it's interesting, uh, Israel did that for Samuel 4. They kept losing these battles. Well, it's going to be okay. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant and having it up front, right? That'll fix it. <laughs> they got clobbered and the Ark was stolen. See, they were placing their confidence in the Ark, not in the Lord. That's an easy trap to fall in. You and I can do that with the Bible. You and I can do that with the church. You don't trust the Bible as an object or some kind of ceremonial thing. You want to put your confidence in the Lord. The Bible is relevant in the sense that it's the Word of God. Indeed, don't misunderstand me. But there's a tendency in these kinds of things to ascribe mystical value to things or certain conditions rather than to keep your focus on your relationship with Him. A third way you can be a hearer and not a doer is through emotion rather than understanding. Responding to a message because, oh, my heart was stirred. Great, how long will that last? Where should you be anchored? In understanding what God has said, not in, in the rhetoric or styling of a, of a presentation or something of that nature. And, of course, one of the other ways is being theoretical rather than being obedient. Knowing all the doctrines and all the check verses and, and uh, all of that. And uh, you do that, you're likely to leave divisiveness behind you rather than relationships. Being too theoretical rather than being obedient to his word. First Peter one twenty three. we are born again by his word. And if so, we are called to walk in obedience to the faith that's revealed in the scriptures. To do anything else is to be self-deceived. And imagining that somehow intellectual assent is all that's required. There are many people writing in, Christian, in the Christian field. You, you can sort of get the sense that there's an intellectual assent, but it's not clear that there's really a, a wholehearted commitment to the person. Anyway, let's flip that coin over. How then, if that's the case, how do we become a doer of the word? How do you do that? Well, probably again by four things. One is by looking intently, searching the scriptures, digging, not just reading devotionally, not just skimming the surface, but digging seriously, intently. And I personally believe it's helpful, if you have that attitude, is to invest in your word. You haven't got a good study Bible, go pick one out. Which one's best? I don't know. Wear one out and then pick another one. <laughs> invest in a concordance. Invest in a set of encyclopedias or dictionaries. Spend a little money and have a resource base at your fingertips when you're by yourself. So when you have questions, you can, boy, you can get in there, not just skim the little familiar verses. Look intently. Second thing, make it con- by, by continuing. Making it continuing, not uh, making it habitual. Not occasional. Third thing, by not forgetting. Learning the scripture. I don't mean just memorizing, but really learn the scripture. How do you learn the scripture? You eat the elephant one bite at a time. Pick a book and master it. Pick a book. Anyone, wherever the Lord leads you. Go get a couple of commentaries on it. Just want a couple, get a different viewpoint, whatever. And go through it verse by verse and try to really... Master that book. Not really master in a literal sense, but you know what I'm saying. Just really make it yours. If you really want to understand that book, you know how to really understand that book? Teach it. Get a little group together. Hey, we're going to go through the book of whatever. And uh, go at about a, ch- a good pace. It's about a chapter a week. 
A chapter is not too slow that you get bogged down in theology. Yet it's, uh, you know, it's uh, slow enough that you're going, you're not just skimming along superficially. You know, do a little homework, do the introduction, get through one chapter with your little group, whatever it is. You can stay ahead of them by just doing a little homework and go through the 5, 8, 10, whatever, whatever it is. And when you've done that, they will be enriched because of your diligence. You will know that book like you never would, you'd never learn any other way. Four ways to become a doer of the word. Looking intently, by continuing, not forgetting. <laughs> what the fourth one is? By doing. Applying it. I'm reminded when I was in one of the think tanks, we used to brief uh, general grade officers on certain things and stuff. And I remember one guy had a flip chart. And the title of it was, How to be Serious About X. X being whatever, anything. How to be serious about X. One, talk a lot about X. Two, have a file on X. Three, develop a plan about X. Four, have a chart about X. And it went on like this. The tenth one, the end of his list was, be serious about X. You know, we can go through all these things. We can make our, get our notebooks and we'd write notes and we can make charts and we can all this stuff. Uh, nothing replaces really being serious about it. Anyway, moving verse to verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. I like that term. Uh, it must be, if it's a man looking at his natural face, it's a natural man. I know there might even be a few here. Who knows? Um, but anyway, and they do that a lot, of course. Um, don't laugh, girls. I'll pick on you, too. Verse 24. For he beholdeth himself, and then goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Very simple idiom that James is talking about here. If just a hearer of a word, not a doer, you're like a man look, beholding his face in a glass, and you behold yourself. It shows you who you really are. But then you go your way, and you quickly forget all about it. Whenever I come across an idiom like this, I'm always reminded of one evening when we had Walter Martin. My partner and I were on his board, and he was he is at Christian Research Institute in those days was in Wayne, New Jersey. We started uh, setting it up so Walter Martin would come to the West Coast and he always drew a real crowd, so he was, uh, as people got to know him on the West Coast, he was always a very favored speaker. We were at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Newport Beach. This is the social church at the time in that place. Walter was up there doing his thing. And Walter, you had to get to know him. He had a, a very mischievous sense of humor. He was, when he was in one of those moods, there's no stopping him. But he, he came across a verse equivalent to this one, and he said, uh, he said, the law, in all his great Old Testament seriousness, says the law is like a mirror. It shows us who we are. It's like a shaving mirror. But the law doesn't save because we're shaved by grace. <laughs> so that was just Walter's way of trying to lighten things up. <laughs> well, the audience enjoyed it. But there was a cadre of the seniors whose faces fell. <laughs> and I thought we were going to have a problem because <laughs> they didn't think that was funny. I, I, uh, that's just one of Walter's irreverencies that uh, he'd indulged in. And I, I, every, every, time, no, every time I come across a mirror type of analogy in the scripture, I always remember that night where the one half the audience, about two-thirds of the audience, was cracking up and there was this conservative one-third that thought they'd been to a funeral or something. So, <laughs> Anyway, if we 
hear the word and don't do what it says, we're treating the word of God as if it was useless. If we hear the word of God and don't do what it says, we're treating it as if it's useless. And I'm deceiving myself about the very nature and purpose of the word of God. If I'm hearing the word of God and not doing it, I'm deceiving myself about what its purpose is. And we can't claim a salvation from death while we carelessly persist in sin which kills. Verse 25. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. This phrase, the law of liberty, is one that's unique to James. It occurs twice in his letter. It's actually not a unique concept to James, but he uses the, he's the only one in the New Testament uses that phrase. But um, we're going to see it again in chapter 2, verse 12. This, the law of God, is a law of liberty. We don't think so. We sort of tend to see it, okay, it's sort of restrictive. We should stay within these bounds because then we'll be all right. If we go outside these bounds, we'll get hurt. That's sort of our, uh, our general model. It's a, a law of liberty very clearly. John eight thirty six. you know, it says that uh, he that's uh, uh, in Christ is free indeed. And uh, Matthew 7, verse 21 to 24, and before you put your notes, uh, Psalm 19, 7 to 11. But if you want to really get a perspective of this, I encourage you to look at Psalm 119. We won't go through it all tonight. It's a lot of verses. The law is our law of liberty for several reasons. First of all, because it keeps us from falling into a pit. That's a form of liberty, preventing you from getting trapped in a pit or from falling into a snare that someone lays for you. And that's in verse 85 and verse 110 of Psalm 119. Also, the law keeps us from falling into bondage, either of an adversary or from some addiction or some sin or what have you. It's also the law of liberty. Have you ever walked in the dark between your house and a barn or its equivalent? In the dark, without a light, you're very cautious and you're likely to stumble. The law illuminates our path a lamp unto my feet, and so forth. Now, the question you need to ask yourself as you drive home tonight is, do we really set a priority on seeking this blessing? He says that the man that is a doer of the work will be blessed. Do we really make a priority in our lives of seeking the blessing of being a doer of his word? I won't ask for a show of hands. Verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue... But deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now the word is kalina go keo, which is a bridle, or to hold in check or restrain, to keep a tight rein on, that is the tongue. I have to say, ouch, this is probably one of the most critical measures of spiritual maturity, control of the tongue. And there's many, many uh, stumbles that I have, but that's probably still one of the ones that uh, is the most unruly in my life. We might hear David again. Let's just take the time. For Psalm 141. Psalm 141, pick up verse 3 and 4. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. And so it goes. Interesting, his prayer is to have reign over his own conduct. He knew that was where the biggest risks were. 
In this verse, of course, James also uses the word religion. It occurs only five times in the New Testament. The word religious also occurs two more times for a total of seven. Ivan Pannon would be pleased. Paul mentions it three times. The word religion comes from the Latin. It literally means to bind back, thus rebind a man to God. Commonly, it's a, a term that refers to a system of faith and practice. There are three Greek words that are so rendered, but here we have threskos, which is a fearing or worshiping God. Uh, also, it means the same verb means to tremble, trembling, fearful. I'd say take seriously, something of that nature. Uh, so it, it, the term has come to mean, of course, religious faith, forms, and ceremonies. It tends to emphasize, in its normal usage, outward observances. And uh, he, of course, is emphasizing here, uh, in a sense, the opposite. If any man among you seem to be religious, and brighteth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. He goes on, verse 27, Pure religion and undefiled unto God, or before God and the Father, is this, to visit the fathers and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Sounds straightforward enough. True religion, that is, practice of piety, is active obedience in two different directions. The first one is to manifest a real concern for others, especially the needy. And, of course, there's a whole string of uh, verses we could look at that. that that's pretty self, you know, self-evident, I think, to anyone that's had any biblical exposure. Any practice of Christianity that does not exhibit this concern in action is deceptive because it misrepresents the truth of, about God's own heart, and it's worthless because it's of no value to God. Any Christian practice that does not exhibit concern for others in action is two things. It's deceptive because it misrepresents the heart of God and it is worthless because it's of no value to God. This is a matter of serious obedience. The second part, to walk personally in holy separation from all uncleanness and rise above the world's sinful follies. And this is really three parts. It directs our attention to ourselves, inward purity. It deals with being polluted Espilos in the Greek, which is spotless, free from censure, irreproachable, free from vice, sullied, uh, without blemish. Term used in the Hebrew, it was used of the sacrifices, like the the Passover lamb and so forth. Um, And the third thing is uh, to keep ourselves polluted from what? The world, the cosmos, the ungodly multitude. The word cosmos, the whole mass of men that are alienated from God. And therefore, they're hostile to the cause of Christ. And... um, and we should, be awake, we should wake up to that as a church. We're so spoiled in this country for the last two centuries because we've lived in a, in a sense a Christian utopia in terms of being uh, able to enjoy uh, the religious freedom that's been our heritage. But that's over. We live in a world that's hostile to the claims of Christ and it's increasingly getting so. Pay attention. Watch what's going on. Now, just to finish up here, James is not just a moralist. One who keeps a list of guidelines, ethical guidelines, to live a happy and respectable life. James is one who is committed to demonstrate that he owes everything to his king. There's a big difference. Don't confuse the externals that he's dealing in with what his real mission is here. The nature of James's teaching is to encourage the application of God's nature and his will to our walk, to our Christian practice. Because we are his first fruits in his redemptive work through Christ. So I'll give you one last thing to think about as you drive home and we'll tie it off. Is there anyone in your life 
who doubts your commitment to Christ? Is there anyone in your life that knows you that doubts your commitment to Christ? Part two, why? Those are the questions I think James would have us ask ourselves. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you that you brought us together. We thank you for your word in which we are born into the redemption of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have brought us to the point of hearing. You've brought us to the point of being convicted by our sins. You've brought us to the point of receiving the redemption that's available for the asking as we approach your throne in the name of Jesus. And yet, Father, as we read your word, we realize that this is not a climax, it's a beginning. That your purpose and your intent and your heart would have us from this new birth experience go forward and grow. And be doers, not just hearers only. Oh, Father, we would just pray that through your Holy Spirit and through your word that you would draw us ever more completely, ever more fully into a commitment that will be demonstrated by our actions, by our words, by our responses to whatever you bring in our path. We ask this, Father, that we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we would, through this growth, be more responsive to your will in our lives, that we would be more effective witnesses for our King before those that we encounter, that we might, that our lives might demonstrate your heart and your purpose in our lives as we commit ourselves this night into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.